Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and this is episode seven of our series of bonus episodes in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. As a reminder, All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. If you are new to the series, the format for these episodes features selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event. And in the outro, Jess and I discuss which action items you can all take, and we offer ways to continue the conversation, including relevant resources and our own commentary. Please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event. This conversation explores the topic, the business case for AI ethics with invited panelists, William Griffin and Elena Kennedy. William Griffin is the chief ethics officer of Hypergiant, an organization that works with partners to create powerful technology solutions and smarter, more efficient human workforces. Elena Kennedy is a data scientist at IBM, working on creating ethical algorithms and aligning human and machine values. As usual, this conversation was moderated by All Tech is Humans, David Ryan Polgar, and the organizational partner for the event was The Bridge. We did want folks uh, to know, as it is December 2020, if you're listening to this live on the day or week or month that this is coming out, uh, that we will have a limited amount of episodes coming out this month. Uh, We'll have this episode followed by one more episode in December, uh, which will be our kind of year in review. Um, And this is because we've put out just a lot of content this year. And uh, (laughs) Jess and I both need uh, some time to kind of reset uh, before we hit the ground running in 2021. Um, So if you're looking for more radical AI content, uh, you know, go into our backlog. (laughs) We we have a lot of stuff that that has gone on this year, a lot of great uh, conversations, and uh, it can be fun to kind of Uh, prod, even if you're just interested in, you know, how the podcast itself has evolved over that time. And we will also be releasing a Spotify playlist of some of our top and favorite episodes from the year. So stay tuned for that as well. But for now, we'll give you what you came here for, which is the panel with Elena Kennedy and William Griffin. Hey everyone, and welcome to our live stream. Today, we are talking all about the business case for AI ethics. I'm your host uh, for uh, today's uh, conversation, which we hope is filled with your comments uh, and, and questions that you may have. Uh, I'm the, the founder of All Tech is Human. All Tech is Human is an organization that is committed to growing the responsible tech pipeline. Uh, if that's a, of interest to you, uh, get involved with us. Reach out at alltechishuman.org. Uh, send us an email at hello uh, at alltechishuman.org. Really thrilled to have our guests here today. We have 
Elena Kennedy, and also William Griffin. Uh, they're both AI ethics uh, specialists. Uh, in particular, we have Elena, who at IBM is an AI ethics researcher, and Will is uh, the chief ethics officer at Hypergiant. So both of you, welcome to our conversation today. Thank you. Thanks, David. Elena, let's uh, let's start off with uh, you. Uh, a lot of our our discussion uh, for our community at Alltech is Human is focused on the responsible tech pipeline. Both of you have really interesting positions in the AI <laughs> ethics space, uh, and then in particular, uh, you, both of you uh, involved with our recent release of the business case for AI ethics, uh, which you can find if you go to business case for AI ethics. Dot com. But uh, I think there's a lot of curiosity about how people even get into this field of AI ethics. So love to learn more about your role at IBM and then how you actually got uh, to where you are now. Sure. Yeah. So uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and, and to chat about this. So uh, the business case for AI ethics was actually something that David and I dreamed up uh, a couple months ago mm -hmm. and came out of a lot of my experiences at IBM. So. I started at IBM just about two years ago, right out of college, and was really interested in looking at technology, policy, um, and AI ethics and safety. I had been involved in that a lot in college, and I was really interested in the community that was emerging around the topic. So I started getting involved. I started doing a couple of side projects within, within IBM um, and ended up starting a small team um, with the help of some of my fantastic colleagues. and started doing a little bit of work within the business. Uh, but one of the things that we often came across, and this is the uh, motivation behind the all tech is human business case for AI ethics, is that a lot of the language of the ethical community is in the academic space or in the policy mm -hmm. governance space. Um, and I really wanted to translate it into the ethical community. So in the past two years at IBM, I've, I've worked with a little team and gotten involved in some of that work, specifically looking at how in industry we can start applying some of this stuff. Um, yeah, but I guess I should give a disclaimer. Um, I'm not here as an official IBM representative. My thoughts are my own, so uh, I'm not here for my employer. Just my yeah. Your your statements do not represent. Uh, I think it's what two hundred thousand people uh, yeah, across exactly. the globe. Yeah. <laughs> we'll actually go back to Elena right now, uh, since uh, since we'll, we'll get Will back on with his his audio. Uh, a lot of conversation lately about Timnit uh, Gabru, who is a very prominent. Uh, uh, AI ethics researcher at uh, Google for their ethical AI uh, space. Uh, and recently, uh, there was a lot of brouhaha about her kind of forced resonation, uh, if you will. Uh, and a lot of it seemed to stem around uh, her pushing back on, on not being allowed to present some of the research that she was doing. So love to hear some of your, your thoughts about, about that situation, because it certainly has rocked the conversation uh, for AI ethics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also has a specific <coughs> significance for um, the business case, specifically within industry. So one of the things that we think we, we have been thinking about a lot in this report and in the conversation leading up to it is how do you address the tension that exists between a lot of academics and, and activists who mm -hmm. do really great work and whose um, mission is sort of centered in, in activism, in advocacy, in thought leadership and creating materials, how do you take that attitude and translate it into a business setting where the things that are important are um, 
you know, creating profit, delivering to clients, um, ultimately like growing the business and growing engagement with your business. Um, those are two completely separate sets of goals and principles. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the industry wanting to grow their business, right? That's what businesses do, but there needs to be a translation to the goals that exist within, within business. Um, and one of the things that we often find is that academics are really willing to start making that transition, um, but there is still a lot of tension, which I, I think is obviously evident in Tim Nitz firing between corporations and the activists who want to critique them. Um, corporations don't do AI ethics perfectly, right? And there, there needs to be some level of conversation on, okay, we want to incorporate this into a business setting. We want to make this profitable for businesses. Um, we really do want to integrate this into the system that already exists, mm -hmm. but how are we going to make sure we protect people who are activists and academics and who don't fit super neatly into a corporate setting, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because if you completely translate AI ethics into a corporate setting, you get AI ethics washing yeah. and it's like sense of feel good corporate branding that doesn't actually do anything. So there's like this very fine line that you have to have to walk. Currently, there's a lot of pressure on, I think, people who work on AI ethics and in industry to uh, make sure that they're they're doing that. So obviously, Tim Nitz firing is is devastating for the community yeah. and and sort of sets back this idea that um, ethics can happen in an industry setting. So um, if this had happened two weeks ago, I think that a business case for AI ethics that you're, you're reading would look a lot different. Yes. Um, and that's but, something that I would like to kind of point out is that what we released yesterday um, and that we we all worked on together and had uh, 100 collaborators that kind of steamrolled right after after our original discussion. It's just the first draft. Uh, and, and we're looking for that community involvement. So there's a lot of ideas, a lot of disagreement, which is good. We should be debating this. Uh, so, so do reach out because we're, we're trying to build this some, something a little more thorough for a March 2021 uh, release. But Will, I see uh, you're back. So I want to uh, learn a little bit more about your work uh, at Hypergiant and then how you got into the space of AI ethics. Well, so first of all, I want to say congratulations on the business case for ethics that you put together and more importantly about the thought leadership that you were able to convene to put in that document, because I think that's the path that we need to go forward. You know, I think that's what actually makes it uh, business as opposed to just pure academic research. I think it gives you the opportunity to look at best practices, look at different roles, see the different points of view from different people. Well, my background is primarily as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I started out in, you know, kind of blue chip big companies and then I went into small companies and then now I'm kind of in a in a growing, you know, emerging company. And so our CEO, Ben Lamb, you know, I knew from a couple of ventures before that we were both investors in a company called Feel Rich. But in Ben said, well, I'm growing a new company with a bigger vision. Would you like to join? And the vision was to use AI to deliver on the future that was promised which is the technology that adds to uh, longevity for lifespan and improves medicine that it's, you know, cars that are hundred percent carbon neutral. Uh, how do we make a more efficient, just and a cleaner world? So I was attracted to that vision in the role we settled on was ethics, because I feel like at the end of the day, Silicon Valley has not lived up to its role as a corporate citizen. <coughs> Sorry, it's not just Silicon Valley, but corporations have them. So I wanted yeah. to be a part of that. So that's kind of how I jumped into it. 
Well, I have a good follow-up question because we did receive a bunch of questions uh, when people signed up uh, originally for this event. And also, I want to prompt anybody who is is watching and wants to participate, uh, just enter your comments and we will see them on our end. And a bunch of those will be incorporated on screen uh, in, in our live stream today. But Will, I'll start you off with this question that uh, we received from Chloe Owen. She asked the question, do ethicists include civil society when discussing the case for ethical AI in business? What is the role of civil society? What's the role that civil society can play? So, Will, what's your what's your thought on that? Because it seems like there's always a lot of, of natural tension between who are the different groups involved in this and how do they actually relate to one another? I think our goal is uh, to think of not just our client in the business case or the technical thing that we're trying to solve as our only constituency. So our model basically is based on Immanuel Kant, a deontological framework. It has three pieces. The first is with this AI use case, is there goodwill? Is there a positive intent for the use case? So in most cases, yeah, it passes that test. The second is the categorical imperative, which is a maxim which says that if every company in our industry, every industry in the world use technology in this way, what would the world look like? That in turn gets to civil society. So that makes our constituency the entire world. It makes the stakeholders the entire world. So our designers and developers are not only looking at what impact does this have for Hypergiant, what impact does it have for the client, but what impact does it have for the entirety of the world? So that's the second step. The third step is the law of humanity, which is are people being used as a means to an end in this use case, whether it's efficiency, profits, et cetera, or are people the primary beneficiaries of this use case? That those three obligations, the burden of proof is on the designers and the developers who we call the use case owners. They have to make affirmative defenses as to why it is that they are ethical with this use case. The second stage in our process involves a red team, and those are the contrarians in our company, and they don't have a vested interest directly in that particular project, the use case. And they come in and they raise objections across all three levers. So on goodwill, they can they can challenge that. But where most of the action happens is on the core of your question, which is civil society. Most of it happens. Are there stakeholders that we did not consider? Are there constituencies that could be negatively impacted by this use case? What impact on society are we having with this use case? And so when those objections are raised, the burden of proof goes back to the use case owner to either modify the project to answer those objections or explain and ethically justify why it is that the use case as originally intended uh, answers those objections, or in some cases, the ethics review board can come in and scrap the project altogether. So within our framework, we look at the entirety of humanity as a stakeholder. Uh, I feel like that's ultimately going to be the only way that you can really get ethics embedded into the workflows, because as we've seen, what happens with tech companies is tech companies, they have a lot of unintended consequences mm -hmm. and their their default position is we could not have foreseen that, you know, that privacy would have been invaded in social media the way it is. Or we could not have foreseen that location based data on phones would be used in the way it, that it has been. But within our framework, the burden of proof is on the designers and the developers to use their creative imaginations to imagine the impacts on stakeholders, even if that's not what the original use case was intended to solve or serve.
Well, let's let's get down. Or actually, Elena, did yeah. you have something to, to add on to that? Yeah, I did. I just wanted to say, um, well, that I I want to emphasize that point about workflow and about integrating a lot of this work into the product development lifecycle, right? Which is sort of one of the biggest things that happens in industry is things don't just appear out of nowhere. There's entire teams that are working on designing products, marketing products, creating products, and delivering them to clients ultimately, and ethical problems can arise in a lot of different parts of that product development life cycle from design to implementation to even the marketing and sales of that work. So it's really important to kind of emphasize that this happens across business units and each business unit has its own language and tools that it uses, mm -hmm. right? You can't talk to somebody who's selling this work in the same way that you want to talk to somebody who's developing it. And so that's an important part of, of integrating this work into business is that just like you can't use academic language broadly as like a and translate it into business, you also can't talk to a salesperson the same way you talk to somebody who's delivering. Uh, you need to have this make sense for them and focus on the elements of this product um, that will come within their purview. So mm -hmm. you might want to talk about fairness metrics with the data scientist, but when you're talking to a seller, you need to talk about explainability. Uh, transparency at like a high level. So the language needs to change between what stakeholders within business you're talking to. Again, because the workflows go from design to deployment. Mm -hmm. well, let's get specifically into some some concrete examples. I see a question from Monica that I'm going to uh, bring up on screen. So Monica asks, how do we include dis the disabled community? Uh, into the development of data sets and machine learning models. Most of the time, they have a problem with uh, accessing information from inaccessible websites. And as a as perfect example, uh, I remember seeing uh, a, a conversation recently at Data and Society where uh, one of the speakers mentioned something we might not think about, even when you register for Eventbrite, how it has a limitation usually of like 10 minutes. Well, if, if somebody was having uh, you know a, a slower time with filling that out, uh, that would be inaccessible. So, uh, Will, I'll, I'll start you off with with that question. So, uh, how do we actually involve these these communities? And as Monica is asking, the uh, disabled uh, community, how can how can we actually involve them to to incorporate this into the data sets? So that's actually a question that that we're grappling with real time. Um, one of our one of our designers is a guy named Mark Boudria who has published a paper actually with the Penn State uh, AI Society on this exact topic, which is to it, which is to how do we create AI and emerging technology for what he calls the differently abled. Uh, and so in order to do that, it got, kind of gets back to our framework. That is a sensitive category constituency that our each of our use cases has to answer. Uh, how do if, if with the categorical imperative? How do it will this use case impact the differently able? Now, in most cases, the designers and the developers will say, "Well, we didn't even think about it because they they aren't going to be the end user of our use case." And then we push it back to them. The burden of proof is on them. That says the question still is how will this impact with the differently able? So even if the intended use, even if they're not the intended primary beneficiary or they're not the intended client, we still have to have a point of view on how it is that the differently able are going to be able to access and use the technology that's designed and developed at Hypergiant. So that's one. The second is there are companies out there like Abilify that you probably are aware of, um, that their whole goal is to go out and consult companies who are developing technology to help them understand the 
that category that the groups that they're overlooking will interact with their technology, even if they don't think about it. So to Monica's point about them being completely shut out of the conversation, one the first step is we have to imagine them as part of our constituency when we design and develop the technology. And then the second is we either need to go to them directly, go to their ombudsman or go to their spokespersons or groups that actually represent their point of view in the use case. Mm -hmm. And the burden of proof is not on the differently able to come in and imagine what use cases we're working on. The, the burden of proof is on the developers and the designers to affirmatively state, even though our primary beneficiaries are X, Y, and Z, here is how it will impact the other sensitive groups and categories that we thought of it. Now, a lot of people, you know, getting back to workflow, when you first go in with ethics, and it depends on what the company, where the company is, and that's why I always think that if the CEO is not involved, and the board of directors doesn't make it a mandate for everyone who touches a use case to use your ethical vetting framework, then it's doomed to fail. I think Google is the perfect example of that. You have the ethicists who are over in one building and they don't agree. Mm -hmm. And then you have the decision makers and the designers and developers somewhere else. And those two actually never meet other than lunch and learns and whatever. They don't meet. Uh, they don't meet. Uh, to Elena's point in the workflow, like they're not working on, they're not in the same production line. Uh, they're totally different in uh, ethics is not embedded into the workflow. So at our company, the CEO mandates it. So all developers and designers get trained on our framework. They should be able to vet on their own uh, their role within the particular use case. But, you know, but in, as part of that, you have to imagine the whole world as your constituency and all of the other uh you know, protected groups within it. Well, that's a question actually I, I see that just came in from Cynthia that I'll bring up on screen. And then Elena, I'll have you uh, tackle this question. It goes right to that point. Really good question here. Having a model to guide ethical product development is great, but how do you, how, how do we apply some notion of ethics to other aspects of a company and how it operates, such as the clients it works with, right? So, yeah. uh, that goes to your earlier point, Elena, when you when you mentioned the uh, concern a lot of people have around um, ethics uh, washing or or viewing this too much in a PR communication strategy, uh, as opposed to actually impacting the uh, ethical development and deployment of artificial uh, intelligent technologies. So, so what do you say to a question like that uh, about this potential disconnect between the people who who might be tackling some of the ethical AI uh, and not potentially getting the buy-in from uh, from leadership or, or a conflict with other departments. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to note again that uh, sort of the business case that we ended up writing is more for internal mechanisms of creating change. But in addition to that, there's an entire landscape and spectrum of ways to leverage power within organizations, within civil society, and within governments that are all also necessary. So something like this would be um, something that could be leveraged from outside of a company. So sort of before a company can be ethical, you do need to have leadership support um, and some level of governance framing, right? So mm -hmm. to actually affect the way that business is done and businesses create different uh, opportunities with clients, you can do that multiple different ways. Um, so the argument of this paper that we published is if you're inside a company, how can you translate to your managers and the people that you work for that this work is important? Um, but then if you're asking questions about 
what if a client itself, like a defense agency, is considered unethical? That might be the work that's done by someone in civil society mm -hmm. or governance or someone who can create right. actual policy that influences right. that. Sort of the argument behind the business case for AI ethics is that companies want to do things that help grow their bottom line. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. That leads, that's sort of the structure that we've all yeah. agreed upon for how companies work, right? And if a client is sort of a, a really good client, they're offering them a lot of, uh, a lot of work, um, there needs to be some different leverages of power to make sure that that work is not um, unethical. So there's a limit to what you can do from inside a company in terms of what you can do. There's a lot you can do, and a lot of it is laid out in the paper that we published, mm -hmm. but there is also a, a lot of outside work that needs to be done. So something like making sure the defense contractors and government agencies have a limit on what they can do is sort of more a governance perspective or okay. a policy perspective or something that civil society could comment on. Um, again, there's all of these different layers for where both, both horizontally, like across the process from design to deployment, but then also vertically, like where are you on that chain? Are you just a data scientist or a tech worker who doesn't get to decide what client they work on? Or are you working on policy and governance, right? So these are different questions that we need to ask both across the work that we're doing and what position you sit on and the things that you have the ability to control and influence. And so I know with our uh, collaborators, right, uh, building this this business case for AI ethics, uh, that was a heated discussion uh, mm -hmm. and actually a lot of disagreement around, do we focus on top down? Do we focus on bottom up? What's the, what's the need of the uh, kind of responsible tech community at large that feeds this underlying knowledge base, but also seeing a bunch of other questions. So even though I have a stack of great questions here, uh, I, I'm, I really want to incorporate some of them. So I see that Alex is, is talking about how can businesses effectively address ethical concerns late in the product development lifecycle or after a large dependence on the underlying technology has already been solidified. So we're seeing this question come up a lot. Yes. If you okay. let me talk again, David, sorry to sure. yeah. the time. Um, but one of the things that we're working on at IBM, and I think is really important, is a continuous assessment of maturity and governance. So when you're looking at something like late in the life cycle stage, um, you need to have a, a, a governance framework that allows you to continuously improve and monitor projects. So ideally in a, in a perfect world, we would have ethically aligned design from the get-go, something like this wouldn't happen. Um, but what we need to have is we need governance metrics within industry that say, okay, well, we're gonna make sure that our projects are sort of working across um, this, this ethical design across the spectrums. So having some way to say, okay, is this problematic? Um, like framing that in a, the way that we like to frame it is with a risk management perspective. So it sort of gets flagged at some point in the process saying, okay, this is kind of risky for our business. Mm -hmm. What do we do about it? Then going back to a continuous maturity scale and saying, here's ways you can improve, get it back in the pipeline. Is it still being flagged by a risk assessment? If yes, put it back in again, see if you can improve it more. Is it still getting flagged by a risk assessment? No. Okay. Let's move forward. Right. So you need to have this continuous process of evaluating your projects for risk mm -hmm. and then having some metrics through which you can improve them and then bringing them back, assessing them again and saying, OK, this seems better. Let's go ahead. Right. It, it can't just be one stop down the road. This also is, is really important because a lot of projects continue for a really long time. Right. It's not just like I'm going to deliver you this nicely packaged mm -hmm. thing. It's like I'm going to continue to do work for you for a long time. 
right? So there needs to be this sense of continuous assessment and looking for where is that risk? Okay, are we mitigating it? Let's assess it for risk again. Um, so, so that's a really good question. And that's actually a, a follow-up and Will, uh, I'll kick this over to you. And then I have another question uh, from DC uh, that I'm going to uh, uh, incorporate as well. Uh, I like how this, this individual uh, apologizes for their uh, username. No need to apologize. You can use whatever username you want as long as it's uh, decently uh, appropriate. But following up on Alex's question, additionally, do you see impactful attempts to reduce uh, the asymmetry of information regarding AI ethics for civil society. And that's a, a big debate, right? Is that uh, it seems like the information is not flowing equally uh, around this. Uh, we oftentimes are, are very siloed with how we, we discuss this. So Will, I'd like to hear a little bit more uh, from you about, about that asymmetry and then really how we can uh, potentially work more with uh, civil society or have AI ethics researchers uh, work more with civil society. So asymmetry is the number one problem between in the number one reason why tech is tearing society at the seams, uh, because in the perfect example of this is the implied consent debate. Everyone, when they download an app or get a social media program, they're agreeing to something, uh, but they can't read all the boilerplate on all those documents that they give implied consent to. And so that's the reason why we're in the mess we're in now. And honestly, it wasn't until the Black Lives Matter protests and the Black Lives Matter protesters begin to point out facial recognition being used by the police force that the general public became aware of how law enforcement was using facial recognition. And it's ultimately that information as it began to spread in civil society that led to IBM pulling out of the business and Amazon and Microsoft in the moratorium. And so what has to happen is more work like Timnitz or Joy, you know, the algorithm of Justice League, more advocates need to come out and explain to the general public how it is that they're being impacted by technology that is completely invisible to them today. So if you use Netflix or if you use Amazon, you're interacting with AI, Siri, like even that basic discussion needs to happen. Like your life is being controlled by AI today. So that education needs to happen on how it's being done. Your credit decisions are being made based on AI. Um, your, when you apply for a job, AI is being used, that needs to be explained. The second step is that once it's explained, it needs to be, uh, it, steps need to be laid out to the general public on what can I do? How can I get involved if I don't like the way it's being used? I think the next major context that citizens will have an opportunity to make changes in the way AI is evolving is as more local municipalities move to quote unquote smart cities. As they make decisions on smart cities, now the electorate has an opportunity to put forward to the elected officials to say, hey, make the case to me for smart cities. How are you going to protect us in the case of smart cities? And I think a good example of that civic education happened in Toronto with Google Sidewalk Labs mm -hmm. project. Once the activists got involved and began explaining to the community how the waterfront was going to be developed and the impact that was going to have on their privacy and how it was essentially going to turn Toronto into a surveillance state, that got the activists active, that got the public active, and that ultimately led to them scrapping the project. And as yeah. you remember, that was the, the sidewalk labs was supposed to be the future of Google. That was supposed to be how it was that they were going to basically control almost every aspect of human life across uh, geographic regions around the world. And once activists got involved, people decided they didn't want to live in a real life Truman show. <laughs> 
they in and that's the way that people get involved but that education needs to happen at that level where people understand how they're interacting with ai the rights that they're giving up in ai the plans that are being made to deploy ai in more expansive ways uh and then they need to be told ways that they can get involved so it's it's a huge it's going to be a huge project uh process but it's going to happen one way or another because no matter whether we like it or not, we're starting to see in 2021 is going to only accelerate it. We're going to see more uh, AI IEDs blowing up in different contexts from different use cases. And the more that happens, the more people are going to demand that policymakers get involved and regulate these companies. Well, and I think your description of what you talked about uh it one, it's a good segue for this question I'm going to bring up, and it also uh, reminds me of a, a great new movie that just came out that features a lot of those prominent researchers you mentioned, and that's called Coded Bias. If you go to codedbias.com, I'd also like to take this time to, to also thank uh, our our partner, The Bridge. Check them out at thebridgework.com. Uh, I, I should have mentioned that at the beginning. We're doing this as a regular live stream series with them, but let's bring in DC's uh, question. So, how do we address? the likely uh, exponential negative impact AI will have on lower income communities and communities uh, of color, primarily access issues, right? Huge digital divide when we're talking about COVID right now, especially sc uh, schools going remote. Uh, so Lena, would you like to take that question or, or Will or whoever wants to, to jump in? Yeah. It, and I'll just kind of preface that with, uh, as we're certainly seeing right now, uh, it's such a heated debate around the people who usually develop and deploy these technologies oftentimes are, have dramatic differences, right? They're, they're not the same as the individuals that are oftentimes the first people to, to use these technologies. And that's something that uh, Kathy O'Neill, the, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, uh, pointed out quite clearly in, in that movie, Coded Bias. So Elena, what, what are your thoughts on, on this particular issue? Yeah, again, I would say that um, similar to some of the things that Kathy says in, in her documents. Um, this involves continuous processes and continuous evaluation and development by tech, tech companies. Um, so they need to start actually looking at those numbers and looking at the demographics and seeing where are we being fair? Are we uh, harming communities? And like, what risks does that bring us and bring to our business? Um, so I actually see, I don't want to like jump around too much, but I, there's another question in the chat that's always that's also about um, without regulation, what incentive do tech companies play? Like to tech I'll bring that up, sure. Do this work, right? And I think that's really relevant to this specific question because if there's no regulation, what incentive do they have? And there's actually a number of incentives. So working on uh, a lot of uh, there have been some studies recently that show doing responsible design for tech from beginning to end of the lifecycle development process actually enhances product quality. There's also the point that uh, William brought up about enhanced regulation. You know, with increased scrutiny on this technology, not only is regulation likely to happen within the next few years that companies will need to be ready for, mm -hmm. but there's also a huge shift in public opinion. So mm -hmm. companies really hurt their brand, really hurt their ability to work within a regulatory marketplace mm -hmm. by not paying attention to these things. So um, there's sort of a there's an there's like an academic activist answer to those questions, but there's also like a very real business incentive to not cause harm to communities, um, both through branding, through re pr prospective regulation. Another really big one is employee retention. Like mm -hmm. as we're seeing at Google, especially with the fallout after Timnit's hiring, 
a lot of young tech workers care about this a lot and don't want to work for companies that are just doing the ethics washing and are found to be irresponsible and not doing anything about it. There's more detail than the report that we we put out, but there actually are a number of very real and concrete business incentives to do this work that lead to increased growth, better brands, employee retention, and real things that businesses should be caring about. Okay. Yeah, and that's the fact that it's just the, clearly the right thing to do. Yeah, and that seems to be the the common thread line is is how do we balance the the actual right thing to do and and what is lined up with the business incentive? Does it have to be good for 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 business? Uh, I saw a comment from uh, Cheryl uh, Kababa in uh, from uh, Substantial, uh, the company Substantial, uh, in our uh, business case for AI ethics. Uh, one of the folks interviewed, and she kind of pointed out, hey, she doesn't think that it should even need to be a business case. It's just the right thing to do. But well, I'm going to uh, give you that question because one of the things that we are noticing looking through all these great, great interviews, yourself included, was that people oftentimes fell into different camps, right? They either fell into, hey, this is all about risk mitigation. And the more risk we mitigate, the more profitable the company is. That's mm-hmm. camp A. Camp B could be about hey, consumers really are, are, are going to value this either now or in the future. Therefore, this is a value add. Therefore, that's more profitable. So that's option B. And option C uh, would say, hey, right now we've got bigger fish to fry because this is all about capitalism until we solve the underlying systemic issues that affect uh, how we how we derive uh, and create products uh, based on uh, maximizing kind of uh, wealth, then then a lot of these issues are going to be difficult to solve. So, uh, Will, out of those uh, kind of three options, where would you say that your your focus tends to uh, fall fall under? Well, let me just say my background is as an entrepreneur, uh, taking risk, reaping the reward. That's really what motivates me. That's how I move. Uh, and so I think ethics is central to that. And kind of our tagline is ethics equals trust. And it's the trust that leads to the economic value creation. That's how you get partners. That's how you get clients. That's how you keep and retain customers because of the trust. So we start with that. That's that's crucial to what we do. The second thing is when we talk to designers and developers, we explain to them how this is going to make you more creative. So here's kind of how our workflow process works. RFP comes in or a statement of work comes in for a client and they have a business and tech solution they want to they want to solve. So that's step one. Then our designers and developers and R&D get together and they create a menu of potential solutions. Then ethics, we go in and we vet all those potential solutions based on ethics. And then if there are objections, it goes back to the team and they either have to modify that use case or justify the position that they took. In most cases, that results in them creating more solutions because it makes them more creative. So when Mm -hmm. people talk about the underrepresented groups or the minority groups or the differently abled groups, now I'm thinking about more constituencies. That should make me more creative because now Mm -hmm. I come up with more solutions. And what we find is that we have more solutions come after the ethical vetting to a particular tech problem than we had beforehand. So I'll give you an example. We had a client who's the world's largest supporter, I mean, largest builder of railway of railway cars. One of the things they developed is automated people movers for some of the largest airports around the world. Well, uh, and then they also do transit systems, train systems, uh, and metro and subway systems. Now, when people, when communities pass bonds for those transportation projects, 
what are those projects really, those big infrastructure projects? They're jobs programs. Mm -hmm. So what our client wanted was a predictive maintenance robot process automation solution. But the solution that we came up with at first would have cut jobs. Well, that's bad for business. It's not only bad ethically, but it's bad for business because it undercuts the reason why those programs were even funded in those jurisdictions in the first place. And it took ethics to point that out to our designers and developers. Once we pointed that out, then they came up with human machine teaming apps where the machine, where the humans worked with the AI in order to uh, deliver a predictive maintenance solution. But that's a case where we would have we would have had our client going going back to a client with the solution that actually would have destroyed their business mm -hmm. because the only reason why those projects are funded is as jobs programs. So there's no way that we could present to them a maximum an efficiency maximizing economic solution that did not actually solve uh, the problem that was being presented by the use case. That's not a singular example. There are literally because of the interconnected nature of the world, especially anyone that deals with public projects or any projects involving the public sector, which is still over a quarter of all the purchasing around the world comes from the public sector. Uh, and then smart cities is going to be 100 percent public sector. So it's important for you to understand uh, the ethical goals of 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 communities and the ethical goals of any of those entities before you even try to design a solution because you could think that you have a maximum efficiency solution that is actually bad for you economically. And so that's the reason why we it's easy for us to make the business case for ethics because ethics at the center will equal the trust and it's the trust that leads to the economic value creation. Good. Well, uh, I'm seeing a bunch of questions come in here. I see three uh, in our pipeline. So we'll probably get to those and then we'll start uh, closing it up, finding more ways that we can stay in touch with with all of you uh, as as we build on this this business case. So let's look at this one. And then, Elena, I'll, I'll uh, give that over to you. I know metrics has been an area that you've uh, done a lot of focus on. So uh, asking for some uh, to, to for us to elaborate on this enhanced product quality the specific metrics we can explore. Yeah, so again, making sure that this is something that we can measure, repeat, and put within a, a process that we can sort of score is really important to do. Um, William's example was really great, right? That when we're talking about enhanced product quality, by having ethically aligned design where we consider a lot of different users, we come up with more solutions. Um, and businesses often really care about this, right? If you come to a business and you say, we're gonna make sure that your product is accessible for everyone, um, takes into account all of these ethically aligned principles, and we're gonna make sure that something like the PR disasters of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica doesn't happen to you. Mm -hmm. I want to see that, right? It, it leads to better outcomes. Um, and often there's these, um, within the, the scope of machine learning, there's been this sort of driver towards uh, efficiency or, or numbers or accuracy. Uh, and what we're starting to realize now is that machine learning systems and AI in general fits within a social context. And to really realize its entire value, we need to figure out what the social context is for it. So we need to figure out the entire spectrum of what our customers want, make sure we can deliver to that, sort of like William's example, mm -hmm. um, while giving them a creative solution that helps them and doesn't actually hurt their business. Um, it requires a lot of creativity, right? And it's it's more than just saying, we're gonna create a system that's like 95% accurate. 
it's saying we're going to create a system that is is accurate but we're being very conscious to make sure it's not biased it doesn't have uh some like statistical errors thrown into it right because um you can have a, an accurate system that is not accurate for people who are differently abled people mm -hmm. of color um if you have a data set that's like 99 white people and you're like oh it's 99 accurate for all the white people it's not actually accurate right sure. you're just focusing on that one metric um, so by moving away from that, just one metric thinking, we can start thinking more about like qualitative metrics of customer experience, client satisfaction, um, and how creating more ethical, ethically aligned design, ethical AI systems, where we're continuously assessing the maturity of them, the risk that they present to clients and ultimate uh, end customers. By doing this, we actually create better business. Well, that's the the next question I'm going to bring in. I know it's a it's a heavily debated question, but we'll uh, I'll send it over your way. Uh, as a consumer, uh, this is the question from Nick. As a consumer, are there any ways or tips that uh, that you can provide uh, in evaluating or comparing the ethics of a company, uh, comparing company A to company B beyond maybe Glassdoor employee reviews, reading the uh, terms of service, and and reading the fine print. Uh, I know this is a heavily debated area. I, I even just, I think, uh, received a, a tweet on that recently um, because it's it's very hard to, to to rank companies because a lot of these major tech companies are so large that they're involved in so many different spaces. Uh, I know specifically, there's always a lot of debate around uh, tech companies and and uh, involvements with ICE uh, and, and other types of um, any types of military uh, involvement as well. But I will love to hear your opinion on that. Uh, is there any way that, that we can classify, uh, you know, here's an ethical company, here's uh, less of an ethical company, especially for a lot of people that are are looking to work for these companies, right? They want to work for a company that they're also proud of. So Nick, that's a great question. Right now, because of the issue we talked about above, the information asymmetry, it's very difficult for the consumers to evaluate how they're being in touch with AI and how those companies are deploying AI. But one of the things that just that was just launched, which is, is a combination of the World Economic Forum, AI Global, the Schwartz-Reisman Institute for Technology and Society, IBM's involved, OpenAI, Oxford Internet Institute, Data Nutrition Project, University of Toronto. I think we had our first working group yesterday, which is to create a responsible AI certification mark for A, companies, and B, for use cases in mm -hmm. uh, products and services. So the, the World Economic Forum, among others, is very well aware of this issue of asym information asymmetry. And so the experts who are concerned about ethics are getting together now to start to uh, create a certification mark, essentially a good housekeeping seal of approval mark for uh, companies that are deploying AI and specific products and services that are being deployed. So uh, great question, Nick. That's yep. the biggest, that's the huge, the biggest issue. And now I think and a lot of those people are involved with David, like some of the brightest minds who are focused on ethics and who really care about it, who, who understand the underlying tech, how it works and understand the players are working on that exact issue. So I believe by the middle of 2021, and it'll hit probably around the same time that we start seeing a, a rush of legislation coming out of AI, they'll probably hit at the same time. There'll be new legislation regulating companies along with 
uh, these industry conventions and these certification marks that where you get certified on a certain scale for responsible AI. Wonderful. I think our, our final question, then we're going to have to wrap things up. I know we could continue talking about this for uh, hours and hours on end, but if, if that's something that you're into, uh, please reach out our way uh, at alltechishuman.org. We're going to continue the conversation. We recently started a Slack group for these types of, of conversations for the responsible tech community. We'd love to have you join us. But the final question, good question about education, specifically for our younger audience. This is impacting, and this is the question that Brad's ask, uh, asking. Uh, AI is impacting children uh, and their present and future world before they can make decisions. What can K through 12 teachers do to make students aware, uh, intro AI ethics and amplify students' voices into these businesses, right? So kids are being impacted. They're not sitting at the uh, boardroom table, right? So um, Elena, any thoughts uh, on that about increasing this education for a younger demographic? Yeah, so there's actually, I, I'm not the expert on this, but there are a ton of organizations doing this work. One I've worked with is Ethical CS, which is specifically focused on getting ethical computer science education into K-12 schools. So check them out. Um, there's definitely a ton more. Um, so like this is this is an area where civil society and organizations play a huge role. Um, there are a lot of people who are working on this. So I would just I would just sort of uh, make space for those voices because I'm I'm not the expert on this, but go check out some of the people who are doing this work. Okay. And then MIT has an AI and ethics curriculum for middle schoolers. So if you go to the MIT Media Lab, it's a, it's a great set of work. It's a great set of uh, uh, it's a it's a small curriculum that will allow you to do ethics eth exercises with middle schoolers and it's specific to AI. So it's called the ethics curriculum for middle school and it's available for free at the MIT Media Lab. I strongly recommend it. I think it's great. And that's a, a good segue to mention that uh, if you're hearing a lot of great resources that uh, we're, we're mentioning today, our partners at the Radical AI podcast, they curate these resources and then put our live stream into a podcast that's going to be released in the coming days. So check that out and then take these action items and curated resources. But love to stay in touch with, with all of you and start building this, this community. So uh, as we kind of wrap the, wrap it up, and Will, I'll start, I'll start with you here. How can people stay in touch with with some of the great work that you're doing uh, is there you know do you have a twitter handle or, or something that you recommend people uh, reaching out your way so will griffin on linkedin if you do will griffin at hypergiant you'll find me and then will griffin one of one on twitter well, I appreciate you uh, you offering kind of your your experience and expertise uh, today. And then, uh, Elena, I'd love to hear from you about where people can stay in touch. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Elena Kennedy, uh, Elena underscore underscore Kennedy. Um, you can just look me up. My name is pretty unique. Um, <laughs> feel free to connect on LinkedIn and um, check out some of the work. So IBM has an AI ethics board that is, is publishing some work externally. That would be a great place to go to figure out like what, what we're doing. Um, they're fantastic and, and putting a lot of great work into this. Um, but yeah, other than that, uh, I think that's, that's probably the best way to find out more. Thank you so much again to David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Elena and William's expertise on these subjects. 
The live stream may be over, but there are many ways that each of us can take action. So Dylan and I are going to debrief our biggest takeaways from the live stream, and we're also going to mention a few specific actions that you listeners can take and other resources that you can follow to continue the conversation. So Dylan, today we are going to start with you. What do you think of the business case for AI ethics? I really appreciated this conversation today because this is a topic that we've circled around uh, through different perspectives throughout the course of this podcast and conversations with people from all sorts of different perspectives. Uh, but I don't think that we've ever just had an episode all about what is the business case for AI ethics. And I was really uh, taken by some of the arguments and quotes and stories that were brought up, not only in the report, but specifically in this, in this conversation. Um, and I think where I would begin is this idea of uh, ethics and trust that William talked about today. I think ethics being connected with trust, which is also being connected with creativity, and all of those things then leading to successful businesses, the fact that trust is at the core of running a successful business is, I think, key here. Um, because I think sometimes when we talk about the business case for AI ethics, uh, we do go to places where it's just risk management, or we do go to places where uh, the values don't matter as long as it impacts the bottom line. And although this concept does impact the bottom line of starting with trust and ethics leading to trust, which then impacts the bottom line, the fact that there is that step to trust is, I think, vital. And I think bringing creativity into it um, makes the conversation around ethics feel more alive and, and more human, um, as it were, which is, is interesting on an all tech is human, uh, oh, live stream. That's good. It's, I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> titled his organization very well. Um, but no, I, I think it's super, uh, important for all of us to remember, you know, no matter how we put those things together, but when we are making a case for AI ethics, uh, to bring in that element of trust and bring in that element of creativity. I think the part that I'm still working on in, in my own space um, is why do we need to make this case in the first place, right? It's like the question of why is it not enough that this is the right thing, that it's going to be harm reduction to be more ethical in the corporate space. The fact that we even have to jump six steps in order to create an argument for uh, how it's going to impact the bottom line, even bringing in trust and creativity, it still makes me a little uneasy. And so of the groups that David mentioned between like the risk mitigators um, and uh, the, the other folks, I think I fall into that third category he mentioned, which was, I really think we got to take a better look at capitalism, right? Like, I think there might be an issue here if we really have to go out of our way so much in order to convince people that have power in society to make changes, to be more ethical and more moral. So... While you're tackling capitalism, I'm going to tell I'm working on it. I'm going to fix it, maybe. <laughs> that would be great. Um, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I, I think that my biggest takeaways uh, from this conversation, at least my initial reactions, were actually to some of the um, maybe like more tangible fruits <laughs> from the um, discussion that was had. And, and for me, something that really stood out in a lot of what Elena was saying actually was like, how do we pragmatically incorporate ethics into the pipeline or as she was saying, like the product life cycle. And that's something I think about a lot because I'm wondering, well, who starts it in the first place? You know, like you can't hire 
hundreds of AI ethicists at every single large tech company overnight and just assume that the problem's gonna be fixed, right? Like who's actually starting these conversations on their product teams? And once the conversation has begun, how do they know what to do? And most of the time I feel like they might not know what to do. I think even one of the members of the audience in this live stream was asking like, what do you do if you've made a product, you've finished the product life cycle, you're about to uh, go and deploy it, uh, on real users and you realize it's unethical. Like, what do you do at that point? And I, I really appreciate that there's efforts to integrate ethics into the entire pipeline of technology, but I'm, I'm also still kind of wondering, like, what do we do at the end? What do we do for those people who maybe weren't so proactive or for those companies or organizations that didn't think about it from the start? Yeah, I think that goes into something that was brought up in this conversation too about uh, the disparity in information that different stakeholders have. So uh, information about ethics or even what the ethical concerns are that are happening in industry or that industry professionals are are thinking about, like even those conversations aren't necessarily trickling down to the general public. And so it's like not even clear to a consumer. I, I was really taken uh, by the conversation around, you know, what can consumers do? Like where can consumers even go to get information about the ethics of these products? And this is about AI, but it's beyond this too. And it's like, yeah, okay, I can go to Glassdoor. Yeah, okay, I can look at the terms of service. There might be some other things I can do if I'm really dedicated uh, to seeing where my money goes, but I really don't think that you know our uh, legal system or our journalist system or just like the ways that we get information. Um, I don't necessarily there that think they're out there to protect consumers or to give consumers what they need in terms of that information. Definitely. Well, that was actually one of the reasons why I really appreciated what William was saying about actually educating uh, the civil society. And I guess it's just like the general public on some of these issues is it's it goes one step beyond education. So, I mean, first, you're, you're right. We have to figure out the education piece. But then once we do, what do people do with that information? And I love that he highlighted the fact that we really need to actually lay out steps, especially in the AI ethics community, as experts on this topic, we need to lay out to the general public what they do with this knowledge and how they can go about boycotting a technology or saying no to some of these um, unethical practices that tech companies are forcing them to do. Something um, I want to say that's not totally connected with that, but I think it's important to say, <laughs> is um, that the uh, this conversation was like quintessentially interdisciplinary. And I think for this podcast where we're so about like getting different perspectives from different disciplines so that we're not only focused on the computer uh, science side of things and we're not only focused on the sociology side of things, but we're in that, that interconnected space. Some of the, the work that uh, Elena and William are, are doing in terms of bringing like philosophical concepts to actual practice is I think uh, groundbreaking even in the, the methodology. And this is something that we see a little bit with Kathy Baxter at Salesforce who we've had on the show before. This is something that we see um, with uh, Ruman Chowdhury um, and, and her new company, uh, uh, people who are bringing these big concepts. So in this case, William bringing up like the categorical imperative and then like actually applying that in industries. So it's not just thinking about interdisciplinarity as, okay, so we have, philosophy and then we have industry and let's put those things together and try to shoehorn one into another. In this case, it's taking this knowledge that we have from philosophy saying we have this situation in industry. Now, can they work 
together. And in this case, I think they found a really powerful solution uh, or at least a powerful language for how to apply that philosophy to make real change in ethical AI product design. Yeah, and I mean, this speaks to the the argument and I guess the case for using the, the lexicon of this episode, the case for interdisciplinarity. And this is something we talk about on our show all the time, but it's so important to recognize that, especially in the field of technology, we don't just speak one language. And if we try to, and if we try to only include the people of specific disciplines like computer science in the conversation, then we're going to miss a lot and we're probably gonna cause harm. So it's important to have conversations like this. It's important to include different disciplines in our solutions. It's important to even speak different languages to the different stakeholders, like Elena was saying. There is a lot to be shared amongst different disciplines in this space, and this is a great example of that. And speaking of conversations, our job here is to remind you that the conversation does not stop here. For each of the episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website, RadicalAI.org. For each episode, you can find the entire comprehensive list of the action items that we just summarized in brief, as well as all of the annotated resources that were mentioned by the guest speakers during this live stream. Also, we include some ways to get involved, uh, along with relevant books and media and other publications. And if you have ideas for resources to include, we invite you to share them on that Continue the Conversation page as a comment. Our goal here, as we say every time when we post one of these episodes, is to build a space together that helps us raise awareness and take action. So the conversation does not stop here, and we would love to hear from you. For more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at RadicalAI.org backslash continue dash the dash conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. We'll catch you Wednesday for our weekly episodes, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after, and then again two weeks after that. And can, can we, we should we should restate <laughs> that. We should probably restate that. So again, as a reminder, there's only going to be uh, two, two episodes, episodes over the next month instead of four, uh, is what I meant to say. <laughs> so we will have bi-weekly episodes for the next month, and then we will go back to our usual weekly scheduling. So one episode this week, and then one episode in two weeks, which is our New Year's special Woo! slash holiday special, uh, which is going to be great. And then we're going to start back up again uh, at the beginning of January. Yes. Got all that? Because <laughs> we sure do. And as always, Jess? Stay radical. And we know our schedule. We'll, we'll post it on Twitter. <laughs> you, should, you should check Twitter for our real schedule, yeah, which is well, going to be what we said, but clearer. If you're confused, just message us. We'll let you know. Yeah, we're not confused, though. I hope that you all take a break. We hope you get some, some time to rest this month. That's true. We're, we're hoping to get some time to rest this month. And it wasn't good. That's good.